Well, let's go to Philippians chapter 2, which is where we've been. We took a little bit of a detour last week from there. Um, and now we're going to go back to it. We've been going through a verse-by-verse -verse study of the book of Philippians. And as you'll recall, we've been picking up on the theme um, that's stated in the, in the book from, um, from chapter 1, verse 5, which... Uh, this business about being partners in the gospel. And Fox family, we're so grateful that you all came back on your trip. We have been praying for you. And it's so good to see you. And we're just trying to hopefully make the most of this time period we have with you But before you guys do fly off to Haiti. But know this, you're in our prayers. And we're thankful for how the Lord's moving and working in your lives. And the partnership and the gospel that we have with you will extend now to Haiti. Um, it's now on Sycamore Drive. But gospel's needed there too, amen. And then you're uh, then you're going to go off and shove off to Haiti, and you're in partnership with us, and we're in partnership with you. What a beautiful thing that is! And uh, so that's kind of the lens through which we're trying to view uh, all the verses in Philippians as we go through. We spent a couple of weeks, and um, you could spend a lifetime in, a, in, a, in Philippians two five through eleven. Uh, because that's one of the that's one of the pinnacles of the New Testament. <clears throat> this is the confession that the church makes, upon which it is founded and built, and that is that Jesus Christ did not regard equality with God as something to be held on to, that God the Son was birthed and begotten by God the Father, sent here, and He made Himself of no reputation, took the form of a slave a slave to God, the Father, put himself under the Father's authority on this earth and took on human flesh and became a man and humbled himself to the point where he obeyed uh, all the way to the cross. But he didn't come to this earth and die of natural causes, but he came here and died a sacrificial death that was planned and orchestrated by God the Father from the foundation of the world. And he was offered up as a sacrifice for the sin of of those who repent toward God and put their faith in His Son. Hallelujah. Now God has highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name, that at His very name every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess, and those in heaven and in those on earth and those under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We've been graced through the, through the gift of repentance and the gift of faith to confess on this side of eternity what everyone will confess on the other side of eternity, and that is to bow down and say, Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. He's not a good way to God. He is the way to God. He is God the Son, that Jesus is God, and that He's eternally the eternal God-man. This is the unique confession of the Christian faith, and it is the bedrock and foundation upon it which it rests. This is the confession. That confession right there has gotten Christians in trouble ever since the church was born. And it will continue to get Christians in trouble until Jesus comes back. This confession is the one that Christians are martyred over. This confession right here. This is the very confession right here that the enemy absolutely hates. He hates this. This is the confession that you, you, you talk to a Mormon and they cannot stand the doctrine of the Trinity. They cannot stand the doctrine of, Trinity, of the Trinity. That God is one, a triune God in three. And the reason they can't stand that is is because if the doctrine of the Trinity is true, that means that Jesus Christ has always been God and that you cannot become God like He did in their teaching. That's, what, that's why they can't stand that doctrine. Jesus Christ is God. 
He always has been and always will be. The job description of God is, if you're God, you've always been God, you are now and you always will be. You cannot be God and become God because the job description dictates that you have always been God. And Jesus Christ fits the bill. He's God. Amen? And boy, that makes the enemies tremble. They all too well know it as well. Because when the demons encountered our Savior on the earth, they didn't put up their dukes and go to fighting with him. You remember what they did? They bowed down, dropped down, and said, We know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Is it it now our time? So let me tell you something right now. When we deal with Jesus, we're dealing with the eternal, infinite God-man, the Son of the living God, who's the hope, the only exclusive hope for the repentant. Hallelujah to his name. Amen. And the only hope that anybody you'll encounter, the only hope is this confession right here, that God became a man, took upon our human, uh, took upon human flesh, the perfect man, took upon our sin on the cross, the only one who qualified to do so, did it, was raised from the dead three days later, and now he's at the Father's right hand where he ever lives to make intercession for us. Amen. Hallelujah. And we talked about the fact that the Lord said in uh, in uh, Philippians 2, 5, that this mind that was in Jesus that moved him to do what he did, i.e., to not regard his exalted position as God as something to be grasped or held on to, but was willing to empty himself of it and humble himself in the greatest act of humility ever perpetrated by anybody to to be God and then to come down here to this polluted earth. What he's saying is this. That confession saves you, that confession sustains you, and that confession should be what you live. The confession is really no good unless it's lived. As a matter of fact, it's validated by being lived out. It's not gifted by being lived out because that would be work salvation, but it's validated as to its authenticity when it's lived out. And that's what he's saying here, that we should live a life that's either consistent with the gospel or either we're going to live a life that's contrary to the gospel. And this is the whole section here. And he comes up to 12 and he says, if you're going to be partners in the gospel, he makes this, he gives us this great teaching in 5 through 11. And now he comes to verse 12 and he's, he's digging further and deeper into a glorious truth of how this should be lived out. What does this mean in the life of a believer? And we're going to look at that, God willing, this morning. So, if you have your Bibles with with you, and you're physically able, will you stand with me right now while we read from God's Word? This message this morning is, Working out who has been gifted in. Working out who has been gifted in. We're going to be Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 and following. The Bible says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now and much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Verse 14, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. That's the word of the living God. Thank you for standing. As we talked about before, as he begins the therefore in 12, he's picking up on the truth 
that precedes it. And what we just talked about, this wonderful, concise, but profound revelation about the identity of Jesus Christ. We've talked about time and again, as far as you and I and our lives are concerned, our eternity rises and falls based on what we believe about Jesus. Everyone has to make a decision about Jesus. Everyone has to make a decision about Jesus and to decide and to come into submission and humble ourselves before Him and recognize Him for who He is. To repent of our sins, having offended God for our transgressions as sinners. All of us. And to believe and trust in Jesus Christ, to repent toward God and place faith toward Jesus Christ is salvation. Then all the merits of Christ, all that's true of Him is now true of His children. That we as children, as His children, we confess Him by faith. The Bible says that we'll confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus. This confession here, and believe in our heart that God has raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And he says, okay, you make that confession. This mind that was in the mindset of Christ is to be in you. And we want to tease that out a little bit if we can here in the next few minutes. It says, therefore, my beloved, he's talking to believers here, as you've always obeyed in my, not only in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works within you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. I want to back up for just a minute and show you something of the scriptures. That's kind of the springboard for where we're going from here. The title of this message is Working Out Who Has Been Gifted In. Working Out Who Has Been Gifted In. It's not working out what has been gifted in. It's working out who has been gifted in. And let me, uh, let me just take it from here and let's go together and look at a, look at a verse that will give us some insight about this confession and how we're supposed to live it out. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to emphasize the last part of the last verse, of the third verse here, but we'll go ahead and pick it up in verse 1. It says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols however you were led therefore i make known to you that no one speaking by the spirit of god calls jesus accursed and no one can say that jesus is lord except by the holy spirit now look at that last phrase no one can say that jesus is lord except by the holy spirit now what that simply means is the confession in philippians 2 beginning in verse 7 that we just read and studied over the last three or four weeks, that confession that, yes, I believe in my entire heart that Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, emptied himself and did not regard, regard equality with God, sameness with God, his, his title as God is something to be held on to, came and humbled himself as the slave of God and became obedient unto death, even the death on the cross, was raised from the dead, and now is high and exalted and lifted up to uh, backward the glory he shared with the Father in time, eternity, and time, in eternity past. And there he is now. I believe that. The Bible says the only way to make that confession is by the Holy Spirit. Now, that should do something to our worship this morning. 
it should change our worship. And I'm not talking about the 20 minutes that we do music worship here this morning, but maybe a 24-7 proposition, and that's this, that your confession and my confession and my belief in these truths cannot be attributed to you and I. It can be attributed to the work, ministry, and convicting power of the Holy Spirit. So therefore, worship ought to be at its purest. It ought to be zero toward me and you and everything toward Him. We, don't, we couldn't, the, the, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 said, where there is their boasting? He said, it is excluded. There is no basis for it. The only basis for any boasting that you and I have is in Jesus Christ and the cross that He died on. He said, except by the Holy Spirit, except the Holy Spirit come, convict you through His convicting power of the identity of Christ and your need, your desperate need of a Savior and God's provision of one and give you the gift of repentance and conviction and belief, you cannot make that confession. Now somebody can make that confession and not be authentic, but to authentically make that confession and it, and it manifests itself in a new way of living is only by the Holy Spirit. That's what we've talked about time and again before. The ministry of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, was that when He comes, He will testify of me. That's why blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the only sin that won't be forgiven. And the reason that is, Jesus Himself said, if you blaspheme against my name, I'll forgive you for that. Think about that. But if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, there's no forgiveness for you. What does that mean? That simply means it is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that the Son is known. And if you reject the ministry of the Holy Spirit regarding the identity and power and witness of the Son and His work on the cross on your behalf, there is no recourse for you and there's no way to be forgiven and there's certainly no way to gain heaven. There are many of our friends in spiritual realms that make much and much of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we should make much of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But let me just tell you this. When the Holy Spirit is active and he's at his and he has his full sway, he does not direct people to himself, he directs people to Jesus. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's who does that. The Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. The Trinity is all involved. And we've talked about this before and I gave you out a sheet to give to your children. God the Father planned the work of salvation. God the Son purchased it by His death on the cross. And God the Holy Spirit makes it known through His Word who wrote it. So we have this confession and the only way we can make this confession is the Holy Spirit. Now the Bible teaches us that every believer like we've talked about time and again is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now we've made the distinction and we've drawn it out many times that all believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but not all believers are filled with the Holy Spirit. There's one indwelling, but there are many fillings. Filling simply means to be controlled by. When the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, be filled with the Holy Spirit, the tense of that language is keep on being filled. It means to progressively give more and more control of your life over to the Holy Spirit who lives within. If you are a believer, the Holy Spirit lives inside you. But the determining factor as to how much sway He will have with you is how much He controls you. Alright? So, the Holy Spirit lives inside us. The only way to make this confession in Philippians 2 is through the power, work, and witness of the Holy Spirit. So, when He says, listen to this, when He says in verse 12, My beloved, my brothers and sisters, saved people, as you've always obeyed in my presence only, now much more in my absence. Kind of reminds me of this, little children. You know, when the cat's away, the mice will play. 
It's a lot more accountable when the man, mom and dad are right there in front of you than when they went you know, down the hallway or whatever. Amen? And the Bible says, you know, if your obedience is real, it will be real whether I'm there or whether I'm not. The apostle tells him, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What he's saying is that which is deposited in needs to be worked out. And the way that it's worked out is humble submission and humble mindset that says my rights as a child of God and all that the Bible says of my inheritance is wonderful and it anchors my confession. And when it's manifest, it means that I'm going to have the mindset that Jesus said and that's this mindset and I think it can be summed up in one verse. For the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. He's saying that which has been deposited in, let the Holy Spirit so guide you and so control you that it starts manifesting itself in the way you live. Now we've talked about time and again and we've got to be guarded and we've got to be careful and we always will be. Salvation is by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now works do not save anyone. And I think John Calvin, I've quoted him before on this because I don't think you can improve on it. It's one of the best quotes I've ever seen outside the Bible. We are not saved by faith and works, but we are saved by a faith which does work. And when they come together, they are supposed to manifest themselves. Faith and works are supposed to manifest themselves in holy living in service. And the mindset that motivates that, the mindset that opens up the door to it, is the humility that we see in Jesus Christ that He would leave heaven, come down on earth, and humble Himself in obedience to the Father. Humility is something that's sorely lacking in our own lives and in the life of the church. And He says, listen, when God has His way with you, in verse 13, it's God who works within you both to will, to will, and to do for His good pleasure. We talked about before time and again that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all He requires of you and me. In obedience, as we submit to Him, not only does He call for obedience, not only does He guide us into obedience, but He's the source of obedience. That we submit to Him, recognizing that He is our life and that any power to obey resides within me. Any motivation to obey resides within me and that resonance is the Holy Spirit. You and I, wouldn't, we couldn't care less or give anybody a plug nickel for obedience were it not for the Holy Spirit living inside us. We would care nothing, really, about the salvation of these people listening on the cross were it not for the Holy Spirit living inside us. We care nothing about being motivated to obey. We care nothing about praying for wisdom and trying to walk in the work and witness of the Holy Spirit and trying to pursue God's will. We can't even credit ourselves for that. If you're in here this morning, and I believe there are plenty of people in here this morning, and your yes is on the table, and you've said, Lord, wherever you guide me, that I'll, I'm telling you right now, before I ever know, before you ever tell me what the next step is, my yes is on the table. That's the way God works. We talked about that time and again. We usually wait to find, we want to wait to find out what it is so we can consider it. God says, no, put your yes up there before I ever tell you. And then when I tell you, which I will tell you, walk in it. Every desire, every spiritual fiber in you and I that desires both to will and to do and walk in His will is through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Work out that which is in you and the way to work it out is right there, right there 
in verse 4, let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, this passage, even though it doesn't use the word love in, in the, two, the 5 through 11 part of it, is about not what love is, but what love does. And when you examine what love does, you begin to understand what love is. Because love is an action word. Humble yourself as Jesus did. Let this mindset be in you as you humble yourself before the Lord. And the first act of humility is to recognize it's God who works within me, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. I take no credit for my obedience. I take no credit for the catalyst for my obedience. Not only is my obedience credited to Him, the catalyst of my obedience is credited to Him. Everything is credited to Him. It's all of Him and it's zero of me. Just like it says in Colossians, as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him. You received Him by grace through faith and you and I walk in Him by grace through faith. Nothing changes. It's not like we get saved and we look at Jesus, although we do this, we wouldn't ever say it because it sounds too bad. But this, there are Christians in here this morning, and you and I have been to these places where we say, Jesus, you saved me, I've got it from here. I'm in, and I can handle it now. But I'm going to tell you this right now. He's going to show you in a quick hurry, if you don't know already, you flat can't handle it. You start making bold assertions like that, whether you say it out loud or you act like it. And let me tell you one of the, one of the things that really indicates whether or not you're really walking in that kind of error. Let me, I'm going to tell you something real simple that will indicate whether or not you're walking in that kind of error. Your prayer life. Your prayer life will indicate, and my prayer life will indicate, how much of the Christian life I think I can handle. If my prayer life is weak and it's low, that means that in effect I'm saying I can handle it. If my prayer life is robust and fervent and passionate, it means I've at some measure have humbled myself before God and I'm admitting through my prayer life, God, I flat cannot handle it. There is, a, there is an inverse relationship between our appreciation for how we can live out the Christian life between our prayer life, our prayer life and how we live. If our prayer life is high, then our estimation about where we are with Jesus and how we can fulfill His will is low. And the opposite is true. And when it's low, that's when we're at our highest because that's an act of humility that says, Lord, I just flat can't handle it. And it's going to have to be you. If I come through in this situation, if that kind of humility is expressed through my life, it'll have to be you that does it. If it comes to a relationship where I'm called to love somebody that I really just don't like, It'll have to be you that does it. If I'm called upon to sacrificially worship you, and sometimes worship demands a sacrifice, in other words, I put aside the circumstances and my disdain over them, and I choose to worship you anyway, it'll have to be you who does it. Isn't it a wonderful thing that God would save us by grace, keep us by grace through faith, and empower us by grace through faith for holy living? And then turn around and reward us one day for what He initiates, sustains, and finishes, and empowers. Hallelujah. I think we're going to lay it right back at His feet. Don't you? So it's God who works within us both the will and to do for His good pleasure. And look at verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing. 
do all things without complaining, grumbling, griping, arguing, and disputing. Because what's the fruit of that? You become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you will shine as lights in the world. I'll say this to you. It is commonplace and very common and very expected for you to gripe and fuss and complain. Because we live in a world in which there's nothing but griping, fussing, and complaining. And what he's saying here is this. When you come off of the realization of the fact that God became a man in the form of Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, and He did what He did and purchased what He purchased for you and I on Calvary, and that He's alive now and the tomb is empty, and He's at the Father's right hand and ever lives to make intercession for us, what have you and I got to complain about? What's left? It's a finished, done work. And then on top of that, when you recognize it's the gift of the Holy Spirit for you and I to repent of our sins because He convicted us of them, it's a gift of the Holy Spirit for us to believe in the one and only begotten Son who is the only way to salvation. It's a gift that the Holy Spirit would be put in you, my life and in your life to empower us for holy living and to guide us into all the truth. And it's a gift that He will finish what He started and the Holy Spirit is put in the life of a believer as a down payment or earnest money until everything comes together in fruition when God ends this age in His Son and we sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb and we see that all of that was accomplished by God through His Son and made aware by on our part through the power of the Holy Spirit who now lives within us, what right do we have to complain? There's a quote, and I've mentioned it you know, many times. I really like the quote. And, and, uh, and, and I've kept it, on my, I kept it on my blotter until I was able to memorize it, which takes a long time for me. And it's very simple. I believe it's true. The Bible places no limits on God's sovereignty. God's in charge. God's in charge. And every time we utter a complaint, it's an affront to the sovereignty of God. But God, you don't understand. Oh, I don't understand. You don't, you don't recognize where I'm at. I don't recognize where you are. You don't understand. It's been too long. I don't know how long it's been. You don't understand. The pain's too intense. I don't understand the pain. He doesn't smart off at you, but he looks at you with eyes of compassion and says, Listen, I sent my son down there not to not just not just to take upon your sin, but to identify with every one of your weaknesses so that he could be a faithful high priest, as Pastor Dave mentioned this morning, at my right hand to intercede for you with compassion, mercy, and empathy. So I do understand. I know exactly where you are. And by the way, it hasn't escaped my sovereignty. I didn't just go look up there and go, whoop, that fell through the cracks. Because every time we think that, we're really, what we're doing is, is we're impairing our worship. We are, we're jaundicing our worship because what we're saying is, God, there's a circumstance in my life or there's a situation or there's a person in my life that you're not sovereign over and I'm, 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 I'm upset about it. Let's draw a contrast between this complaining business and one who complained and one who did it perfect. And you know who he's going to wind up being. Look at Numbers chapter 11. Let's look at Numbers chapter 11. You know what we talked about last week? And we've talked about this time and again, but here's what we talked about last week. The most dangerous person on the planet 
Listen to me carefully now. The most dangerous person on the planet to the cause of Christ, and the cause of Christ is going to go on no matter what. He's going to build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. But the most dangerous person on the planet is not the openly pagan person. But it's the one who can't make up his mind, who's lukewarm, who's in the middle. It's an inside-outsider. It's an in-between person. It's the compromiser. It's the person who professes to know Christ but seldom acts like it. It's the person who confuses everybody. We're not confused by somebody who says, I completely deny Christ. There's nothing confusing about that. But there's something incredibly confusing about somebody who says, yes, Jesus has changed me and there's nothing in their life that indicates that. This is why a whole generation of Israelites were killed in the desert because they got out, but they wouldn't get in. They were in-betweeners. What should have been 11 days, 11 days, 11-day journey, wound up taking 40 years and God had to kill off every single one of them because of their disbelief. They just wouldn't trust him. They just wouldn't believe him. You go look and see what he did. He departed the he parted the Red Sea, gave them a supernatural exodus from Egypt, drowned Pharaoh's army behind them, and then did one supernatural thing after the other to show his presence and power and love and compassion over them. He gave Moses the law on Mount Sinai, and he gave Moses the tabernacle on Mount Sinai, and he said, listen, here's the law, but I know you're going to break it, and here's a way to appease my judgment until my son comes. And then he was the pillar of cloud by day, and a pillar of fire, the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night to show that he was with them through the whole journey. And every last bit of that wasn't enough. And what did they do that ensured one more lap around the wilderness? They griped, fussed, and complained. God, you don't know what you're doing. You got us out here in the middle. You got us out, but you can't get us in. And you know what? Here's the deal. We talked about this time and again before. There's one thing that God flat will not work through. And that's disbelief. He just won't. Shuts him down every time. He will not work through disbelief. Now look what he says here in Numbers chapter 11. Now when the people, this is the middle of the wilderness wanderings, when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. For the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. So he called the name of the place Taborah because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. Now let's skip down to verse um, 4 through 6. Now the mixed multitudes who were among them yielded to intense craving so that the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt. Can you imagine that? 430 years of Egyptian bondage. They got out of slavery, but slavery did not get out of them. And look what he says. Oh, it was better in Egypt. We remember the fish that we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Wow. It's easy to look at them with contempt and say, can you believe that they ignored all those miracles? I'm going to tell you something right now. The contempt for us is greater because we've got record of every last one of them. What's the difference? You tell me the difference. There's not a difference. We've got the whole story. We've got the whole narrative right here. We've got the plan of salvation and we've got the person of salvation, Jesus Christ, right here in front of us. It's ours for the believing. Look at Acts chapter 7, verse 39. 
And we'll get insight into what their problem was. Acts chapter 7, verse 39. Acts 7, 39. This is the uh, declaration that Stephen made, and every time he got one word out of his mouth after another, somebody was picking up a rock. And they waited just long enough to, for him to finish this, re, this recollection of the sordid history of God's covenant, but yet rebellious people. And all that they had done, and everybody was getting so mad at him that they ultimately stoned him at the end of the chapter. But while they were still waiting until they threw the rocks at him, he said in verse 39, Whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. John Owen said this. He was a Puritan writer and a theologian, brainy guy. And he said, Love for this present world hinders growth and grace. That's absolutely true. Love for this present world hinders growth and grace. I'm going to tell you something right now. We've got to pick a team. We've got to make a decision. We've got to declare. Can I say this, Cheryl? I applaud your spirit-led decision to take your mother in and the rest of her days be there, not in some home somewhere, but in your home. That's, that's, that's not love for this present world. That's love for Jesus, and that's doing what God told us to do with our, uh, with, with our moms and dads when they get older. See, we play by the same rules the world plays by. We, we, ha we have the same priorities that the world has. And we embrace, and we've got standing in the world, and we're not willing to give it up. We, we wanna, you know, we've got things that we're holding on to. And I'm here, I'm here to tell you, they've got a bigger grip on you and I than we give credit to. Either this world is temporary or we're passing away. You know what we're doing? We make a lifetime out of trying to hang on to what we're going to give up anyway. In your heart, you turn back to Egypt. Egypt is a type of the world. Pharaoh is a type of the devil who is the God, little g, of this world. Jesus himself called him that. When Jesus was tempted in the, in the wilderness, and he said, listen, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you everything you see out there. That was a legitimate offer. I'll give it all to you. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. My kingdom's not of this world. And I'm coming, by the way. But let me tell you this. Here's the deal. We, 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 we order our priorities the same way the world does. He who's got the most toys wins. The world's mind is the polar opposite of the mind we just read about in Philippians chapter 2. The world's mind is self-preservation. Jesus is self-denial. The world's mind is, I've got these expectations, and until they're met, I will not worship. That's what you're saying. When you and I grumble and complain, what we're saying is until my conditions are met and until this thing plays out the way that I want it to play out, according to my expectations, I will not worship. Did you know what? I don't believe in the history of the church if we've ever had a, such a low view of what worship is. We have reduced it to 20 minutes on Sunday morning. So much so that churches are split because some don't like contemporary music and some don't like hymns and some don't like praise music and we don't do enough of this and we don't do enough of that. Thinking that and operating under the premise that your worship is for you. We should be consumed about whether or not it pleases Him. But let me ask you a question. If we've been griping and fussing and complaining all week, do you think for one minute He receives the 20 minutes? God, you're not sovereign. You really don't know what's going on. You're not in charge. 
things have, things have, things have escaped your view. And I'm upset about it. I want things on my terms. I want things my way. I've got unmet expectations. It was supposed to turn out this way. And it's not turning out this way. And that's bred frustration and fear and conflict in me. I am tired of the suffering. I'm tired of being tired. I'm tired of making excuses for you. I'm going to worship you on the outside, but I can tell you this, I am not yours on the inside. I've turned here and I'm an in-betweener. And I'm not going to go in. I'm not going to go in under your terms. I'm not going to do it. And he said, well, i tell you what. You'll have to die right there because I can't do anything with you. Not that I don't want to, but I can't because you're an in-betweener. You've got to pick a team and put on a jersey. Let's be abundantly clear about who we are and who we profess. And that profession should come out in humility and serving others rather than serving ourselves constantly. Constantly promoting self-interests. But put aside our interests and be willing to express agape love to other people. Which means that we're willing to give up our life for the spiritual benefit of others. So here's the, here's the fuss and the griping crowd. 11 days, 40 years. Okay, that's what it turned out to be. Let's contrast that with our Savior. Look at Mark 14, 26. We'll draw the contrast and we'll get to see and we'll, we'll develop this more, God willing, but we'll close in just a second. But look at the contrast. This is a verse that we looked at before and we've looked at this teaching, but I, it, it's constantly, constantly an incredible blessing to my life. Very simple verse, Mark fourteen twenty six. The setting is Jesus has had the Lord's Supper. It's Passover time in Jerusalem, which means it's time for him to die because he's the Passover lamb. This time, rather than a lamb being offered, a regular lamb, the lamb of God is about to be offered. And he has the Passover of the meal. He alone knows what this Passover meal means. He alone really knows the implications behind this. All the rest of them are celebrating. You know what their mindset is? We've come into Jerusalem, and he's fixing to take over. I mean, the Roman tyranny is about to be done. Caesar, you watch. You're going to get yours. And I'm going to be Secretary of State. John's going to be Vice President. Peter is going to be Secretary of Treasury. You know, we, and we've got all these... We've got all these plans. We're going to serve prominently. He's already promised us in the kingdom. We're going to have a, a, a great spot because we, we gave it all to serve him. We do that same thing, by the way. We think Jesus is coming back to make things better. He's coming back to replace things. Amen. And that means that we need to humble ourselves in the meantime and just follow him, whatever that means. Not to be saved, but because we are saved. And you know what he's... he's and Jesus alone is watching the... Celebrate. He's watching the eyes and he's watching the mindset. Things like this, the questions they have. Lord, is it at this time? Is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom? Is it this time? This is the expectation. And he's talking about this cross business. And they're going, I'm confused about that. I don't care about that. You know, I'm, this, the cross now, hold on a second. We're still doing this. We're still doing this. That cross thing, now that just confuses things. That messes up my plans. I want to go from fishing to being high in your administration. He said, no, 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 there's a cross in between. Not just for you, I mean, not just for me, but there'll be one for you. But look what he says. 
Acts is one of the most precious things in all of the Bible. It says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You know the story if you've been in this church long enough. But that church, that hymn that they sung was Psalm 118. It was called the Hallel. And it was sung at Passover time. And they were singing Psalm 118. This, this is Christ's disposition for the privilege of dying for your sins whereby the Father is glorified. And it's found in Psalm 118. I want you to look at it. Psalm 118. Turn it over. I want you to contrast that with the wilderness murmurings. And, you know, God, you got us out, but you can't get us in. And I'm upset. And I'm this sitting right. It didn't turn out the way I planned. You don't know what you're doing. I'm totally dissatisfied with you. And I'll say on the outside I'm satisfied with you, but in the inside I'm not. And it's manifest by the fact there's virtually no victory in my life. And certainly no humility or service toward you and laying down my life for the spiritual benefit of others. But look at verse 24. Psalm 118, verse 24. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. That, that, that's an eternal word written 800 years before the event. Jesus is seeing it and the setting is this. He is in celebration and praise over the day that he would die and go, would die on the cross for mine of your sins. I was just singing it with my children this morning in the van, trying to get them to sing with me. You know, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made, that the Lord has made. I will rejoice, I will rejoice and be glad in it, and be glad in it. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord hath made. Every time you sing that, just remember that our Savior sang that, speaking of his death. That psalm was written about the cross. This is the day. Not that the devil made. The devil didn't make this day. The devil didn't drive, take Jesus to the cross. Jesus was not a sacrifice to the devil. The devil tried to prevent him from going. Peter spoke up and said, no, these things will never be. And Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan, because you're thinking about the interests of men, but you do not have your mind, mind on the interests of God and the will of God. He was trying to keep him away from the cross because he knew what was going to be purchased there. This is the day that the Lord has made. Get up in the morning. The application to you and I is this. If you're going to follow me, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus daily. Get up in the morning and say, this is the day that the Lord has made. And I will rejoice and be glad in it. And whatever it holds for me today, nobody can take my praise away from me. No matter what. I'm going to lift Him up. And I'm going to praise Him. And God, I want you to fill me with you. And I know that means emptying me of me. And will you empty me of me so that I'm filled with you so that I can serve you today and follow you. Not to be redeemed, but because I have been redeemed. Not to earn your love, but because I've been freely given your love. Consecrate me. Help me to live in a greater level and measure of surrender today. I celebrate. The joy and grace of dying with you today. Because in order to die with you means I get to live with you. 
Look at the disposition. Wilderness wanderings, gripe, fuss, complain. Everything's not right. The meal's not right. It's better than Egypt. They started romanticizing slavery. That's what happens a lot. We have memories of the way things used to be and the memories are usually better than the way they really were. And say, oh no, but I'm in here. No, we need to go back to Egypt. And, and look at the contrast. The contrast couldn't be greater. First covenant, can't. that's what you get. New covenant, brand new life inside you, this is what you get. This is the day that the Lord has made and I will rejoice and be glad in it. You may interpret that for you. God, human. this is human. This is Jesus' human side speaking. God, I know who you are. I know of your glory. I know of your grace. I know of your attributes. I know of your mercy. I know of your compassion. And I know it best because I know you to be just. And you can't really appreciate God's grace until you appreciate the fact that He's just. And that makes His grace seem all the more gracious. You can't really appreciate the fact that God is a God of mercy until you understand that He's a God of wrath. And when you begin to understand all of this, then there's nothing left but to praise Him. And Jesus said, Father, here's what I know. You deserve to be glorified. So much so that today, this day that was selected by you and that was orchestrated by you on this day, I get to die so that your name can be worshipped and glorified on behalf of your own forever because you deserve it. That should be our disposition. I told my children, I said, if you have a problem with your brother and sister, you got two bedrooms. Constantly having to negotiate, you know, space. You know, my toys are under there. And I've got them exactly the way I want them. And if you touch that toy, make up the bed just this way, and the pillow's that way. And if it's turned this way, I'm so mad at you I can't understand. So let me tell you something. Right I said, you're gifted with the privilege of living with your brother and sister. We've got two boys and two girls. And every time you're tempted to get mad, think about that scripture and say, the Lord's teaching me how to be selfless. The Lord's teaching me how to share. The Lord's teaching me to have a less of a tight grip on things I quote unquote call mine. I say, your mom tells you to do something and it's counter to your plans. It disrupts things. I'm supposed to go outside. You told me you had to go outside. You ever notice that your children remind you of things as if you had signed a document and committed before time began that you promise and have it notarized that on this day at this time and if you divert from that, they will remind you of that and say, oh, wait, that was promised, Dad. Then I say, you know what though? Listen, the lesson you can learn is from this. God's trying to teach you to honor the authority that's been put in your life. And when you do so, you're bringing glory to His name. When you treat your brother or sister kindly for violating your space, even though you could get mad, you're bringing glory to His name. When you're loving somebody else and you choose to forgive them when they do not deserve it, and you want to lash out. I've got to hear from you. I've got to hear from you. You're going to make it right. Because I will not forgive you until you do that. Offer the forgiveness and put it in God's hands. When you do that, you're glorifying the cross of Jesus. 
You take your pocketbook and you put it under the authority of Jesus and say, Lord, I don't care what it means. That is no longer mine. And I'm saying right now, our priorities are going to be centered around your priorities. And my time doesn't belong to me. My children don't belong to me. My future doesn't belong to me. My objectives don't belong to me. My talent does not belong to me. Everything I have belongs to you. And every bit of that, stack it up and mark it down and write it off, Every bit of that was given by you for me through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within me to gift it back to you so that your name will be glorified. Don't complain about the very thing that you asked Jesus to do. You asked Jesus, Jesus, make me like you. And then he goes about doing it. And you go, that's not what I expected. That's 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 all that's old covenant. That's the nation of Israel. I expect that. No, no, no. That's not what I signed up. It's not what I bargained for. Doesn't mean you're going to go to hell. If you're a legitimate believer, you're going to go to heaven. But I can say this to you, and we can prove it biblically. All Christians, excuse me, all disciples are Christians, but not all Christians are disciples. And some legitimate believers get to a point and they draw a line in the sand and say, that's as far as I'm going to go with this right here. That's it. You settle down. No wonder there's so much frustration in the body of Christ. No wonder our priorities are no different than that of the world. No wonder we don't have the joy that should we should have. We're living, we're living unconsecrated, unsurrendered lives. And we're putting Jesus' name on it. We're a poor representation of what it ought to be to be a Christian. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Let that profession live it out in you. And let Him live it out in me. Amen. And He'll clean you. Is it alive in you? Is He alive in you? Is that which He deposited been working itself out? I can tell you this. Here's a, here's a litmus test for us. We've already talked about our prayer life. Let me tell you another test. When you're tempted to react to a situation and you're, you're confronting something, especially something that you really have dreaded, first of all, rejoice over it the way Jesus did on the eve of his death. Rejoice over it. Wherever the, wherever the most difficult part of my life is, it's where God is trying to do his greatest work. Rejoice over it. Start praying, even if, even if it makes you mad to do it. This is the day. This is the day. Just start that way. And I tell you, I'm telling you, you'll work into it. I'm telling you, you will. You'll work into it. And all of a sudden, there'll be perspective. And you'll be going, oh, God, you, you orchestrated this. This was your plan. You, this didn't escape you. This is not outside the, the, the parameters of your concern or ability to move. You've chosen not to move the way I wanted you to do because you've got a better plan. And, and, and start praising him. And then before you react, Sift it through, Philippians 2, 7 through 11. Was there a humility in that, or is what I'm about to do self-serving? Was, was, was that a reflection of Jesus and his attitude that he would spend himself and put aside his rights? Am I putting aside my rights? Because in light of what Jesus did, the fact that we would assert our rights has got to be an incredible offense that's only guarded against judging us because of his patience and love. That's got to be the only explanation. 